who happened to be with us last week, Pastor Troy Stogsdill was here, and he shared with us out of the first eight verses of chapter number three, and he said, are ye yet carnal? That was his title. The idea is, is that there was carnality in the Corinthian church, and we dealt with some of those issues. Uh, carnal, if you're not familiar with it, is just a word that means fleshly. Uh, you, when you walk according to the power of your flesh rather than according to the power of the Holy Spirit, when you walk, as the Bible would say, as men. Okay, we in our, in our human state, our nature is to do what we do for ourselves, for our own fleshly personal desires. And that would be a problem if you're trying to walk with the Lord because those two things are at odds with one another. In fact, if you were to look back in verse number three of chapter number three, uh, you'll find that carnality is described with some of these words like envy and strife and divisions. And, and you know, envy is that idea is where you see somebody else has something and you wish you had it and you're envious of that person because they have some benefit and you don't have it. Well, the source of that is yourself, right? It's your flesh. You want something that you don't have. Uh, strife. That's fighting with other people, typically defending your position against the position of others. And divisions come typically from valuing yourself over the position of the whole. And you don't care if the whole group is splintered as long as you can be right and that sort of thing. All those things come from the source of carnality. And what happens is when we have those issues in our life, envy, strife, and divisions, we indeed are carnal, and, and what we have forgotten is what I have pointed out to you as the theme of this entire study, and we call that the power of community. And we will see today, and we will see over and over again throughout this whole study that will take at least a year to finish, that Paul emphasizes to us how important it is that we consider the whole, the body through which we serve and live. And how that is really the important focus that we need to have to keep us from being so self-centered and individualistic. And today is an amazing emphasis of that point. Uh, the way we could say it in other words is this, and I have it in your notes. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You've heard that before. And in Christianity, that is true. The whole, the body of Christ, is greater than the sum of its parts. We are not an island. We are not just individual Christians and that's all that matters. We are a body and he made us to be a body. One of the ways that I stated it in the introduction to this study some weeks ago was we is greater than me. And that's just a way that maybe you can remember it. But even that idea of embracing the truth that we are more important than I am as an individual, uh, that starts with me as an individual embracing that that starts with each and every one of us as individuals deciding that what we're going to do is we're going to make that a priority the body the community is going to be a priority and if we act on that value well then we're going to see some tremendous results i think that's why paul reminds us then in verse number eight and we saw this last week now he that planteth and he that watereth are one and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. And that's what we're going to develop today, coming into verse number 9. Because verse number 9 starts with the word uh, for, continuing that thought. And the idea is this. God is looking for each and every one of us as individuals. And he's going to check out how we have lived our lives. 
He's going to reward or judge us accordingly to how each and every one of us as individuals live our lives. But how we live our lives, not just as individuals, how we live our lives prioritizing the community. See? And that's what we're going to see as we continue to walk through chapter number three. So I gave a title today's message. I call it The Cure for Carnality. Last week we talked about carnality. And I believe God gives us the cure for carnality in this passage that we have here. Certainly, if we're just honest, we all suffer from it from time to time. Certainly, our, our flesh crawls up and gets a, gets a hold of our minds and leads us down the wrong path from time to time. And so today we're going to see two things that if we apply them, will keep us straight. Will keep us to follow the Lord and walk in the power of the Spirit much more frequently than in the power of the flesh so that you can enjoy a fruitful life today and you can secure rewards for eternity. So God loves us enough to give us this info. So let's start in verse number 9. Follow along. I'll start reading and we'll go down to verse number 15. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, this is a familiar passage for many of you, and maybe for some of you it's new, but it really is very straightforward, and I think you're going to see very clearly what the Lord has for us and how we can keep ourselves between the white lines of a spiritual walk and not drift off into the, into the weeds of carnality. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study time. So, Heavenly Father, this is our prayer. Thank you so much for the time of meeting with us in worship and pre preparing our hearts to meet with you now before your word. I do pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that your Spirit would be our teacher, that we would surrender our desires, our thoughts, our preconceptions um, to you, and that we, we would gladly receive anything and everything that you would have to say to us today. Let us each examine our own lives. Let us each consider our own selves in the mirror of your word, in the light that you have for us today, and, and allow us, Lord, to see the world as you see it, to value it as you value it, and then to walk as your body, your hands and your feet, gloriously representing you in a way which you are worthy. Lord, we love you. We want to do it for you. It's the least we can do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that we're going to see, verses 9 through 11, is what I'm calling that you are recruited to work. You are recruited to work. It says, for we are laborers together with God. That's a fact. That's who we are. If you call the name of Jesus Christ, if you say that you've been born again, if you've received the forgiveness of your sins, you are a laborer together with me and everybody else who is a laborer for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a fact. If he saved your soul from hell, if you received that forgiveness, he did it, at least in part, to put you to work. That's why he did it. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, oh, and verse number 10 
say to us, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We receive salvation as a free gift. We understand that, but it goes on in verse 10. We frequently memorize 8 and 9 and not 10. Today, let's look at 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And by the way, this work that we are to do for the Lord as his workmanship, in verse number 9 of 1 Corinthians 3, we are to do it together. We are to do it together. We are laborers together with God. And we are in it together. And we need to do it together, whether you like it or not. So somebody invariably would say within themselves, of course, never out loud, ah, I don't want to not interested sorry well people say that i know that because i've heard it and i would say to you in all christian love well so what i mean so what if you don't want to god said it is a fact we are laborers together and oh by the way this is your new vocation you have been saved to be his workmanship. You have been saved unto good works. You have been saved so that you would labor together with the body for his glory. You say, yeah, but I don't want that part. Oh, really? Uh, Do you want the part that's the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ? Do you want that part? Well, yeah, of course I want that part. Well, it's a package deal. I mean, that's how it works. I mean, what exactly happened? Don't you remember what you agreed to when you received the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, listen, if you truly are saved, you are only saved because you made a commitment where you had full surrender of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You recognize that He, only He, can forgive your sins, and there's nothing you could possibly do, not by works, right, that we've done, but by His mercy He saved us, right? By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. I mean, this is what he did. And if you surrender to that, basically what you said is, Lord Jesus, I understand my life is sinful, it's dirty, it's useless, and I'm on my way to hell because I deserve it. But you died in my place. You have a sinless, perfect, holy, eternal life. And Lord, I want your life. He offers it to us. And I will give you in exchange my nasty, dirty, rotten life. That's the offer he gives to you. And if you said, yes, Lord, thank you, and by the way, hopefully you've all said that. If you have not yet said that, he extends that offer to you today. The idea is that he said, look, this is my offer to you. Would you like it? And if you were smart enough to say, yes, absolutely I want that, what you agreed to was giving him the full control of your life because you took possession of his life. Now he's the boss. He's the Lord. He's the one who calls the shots. And he says, okay, I'll give you the free gift of eternal life, but now that you're on the team, get busy. It's time to get started. It's time to serve. It's time to do things. We'll see in some time come when we get to chapter number 6, but look ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. Paul says to the carnal Corinthians, he says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, check it out, and ye are not your own? Don't you even recognize the fact that your life isn't your own anymore? Don't you realize the fact, verse 20, that you're bought with a price? 
Therefore, because of that fact, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's what he wants from you. That's what he saved you to do, to represent him, to serve him, to work together. And that's why we're here. You are recruited to work. In other words, and because I think it's important for you to write it this way in your notes, you are expected to work. You are recruited to work, and you are expected to work. Now, we go back to verse number 9, and it says, Ye are God's husbandry. Well, that's the illustration of working in the harvest field. That's what we would have seen back in verse number 6. I've planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. The illustration that Paul uses on one hand is that of a farmer, a gardener. It's somebody working the soil. He's working in God's harvest field. The next illustration is the last part of verse number 9, right? It's a building project. Ye are God's building. And this is really the illustration that continues on down in this passage that we see today. In fact, this illustration of us being likened unto a building, okay, is, is clear throughout the scriptures in many places. I want to show you some of them. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 19. And I want you to notice, fans, that in the King James Bible with the Old English that maybe some of you don't prefer, the these and the thous and the ye, ye is plural. That would be the cash equivalent of Alabama's y'all. Okay? I want you to notice the ye and the togethers all throughout these verses. I want you to see how God is emphasizing all of this we are to do together. You see? Ephesians 2.19 Now therefore... Ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation, see the theme, of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit." This is the typology. This is the imagery the Lord is trying to, to portray. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, God makes things very clear. It's not difficult to understand. Paul says to Timothy, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. What's that? Which is the church of the living God. So that's easy. The pillar and ground of the truth. So the house of God is the church of God, and it takes all of us together, builded together. We all understand that the church, biblically, is not a building. It's not a physical facade in a structure. We are the church. And when we come together, then we together make up this spiritual house. That's what 1 Peter 2.5 says. Ye also, as lively stones, living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Do you know, did you recognize that he gives these two illustrations? He gives the illustration of farming and he gives the illustration of construction. I don't know about you, those are two of the hardest working people groups on the planet. Both of those professions require some sweat labor, don't they? I mean, you got to be in it. you got to work. 
And you're working hard if you're a farmer. You are working hard if you're in the construction industry. You know that's true. And he specifically chooses those as the illustrations of what we are to do in the body of Christ. You're expected to work. What exactly is it that you're expected to do and put your sweat to? Well, there's several things. The first one, the work of the ministry. The Bible calls it the work of the ministry. And in Ephesians chapter 4, it specifically says that. We're going to start in verse number 12, but if you were to read verse number 11, it starts by talking about how Jesus Christ gave certain gifted men positions to the body of the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why did he give these people to the church? Well, it says in verse number 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. How long do I got to do that? Until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When's that going to happen? At the rapture. That's when it's going to happen. How long do I have to work before I can retire? Until the rapture. Until the rapture. Until, until this physical life is over and God calls you home. That's how long you're going to labor for the Lord. There's no discharge in that war. Listen, we've got to stick to it, right? That's what he's calling us to do. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.18, he's very explicit where Paul says that he's given unto us, church, a specific ministry, and he calls it the ministry of reconciliation. To it, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. You know what we call that? In other words, we call that the work of evangelism. The work of evangelism. That's the work that he's called you to do. You have been recruited to and expected to do work. The work of the ministry. The work of evangelism. Paul even tells Timothy, a young pastor leader of a church in 2 Timothy 4, 5, to do the work of an evangelist. Because it takes work. It takes thought. It takes effort to go out and to find people and to talk to them and to bring the conversation around to the gospel and to share the gospel and to let people know that they need to know that there is a Savior. The other work that you do in your life to provide for your family, those are noble. Those are important. Those are even required of you to take care of your family right. But listen, we are here. We are called and expected to do the work of the ministry, which includes the work of evangelism. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul points out in the beginning of verse number 10, he says, I have laid the foundation in this illustration of a building, right? And then jump ahead to verse 11 where he says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, In this church here in Corinth, I showed up first. I shared the gospel with all of you. The people that got saved, they got saved because of my witness to you. The foundation has been laid through my ministry. Oh, and the foundation, there's only one foundation. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the work of the evangelist. That is what Paul did. That is what we are to do. But there is also other work for other people because we labor together, right? In order to build upon this foundation. And that's why it says in verse number 10, And another buildeth thereon. So you may not be the person who leads everybody to the Lord. You may not be the person who frequently leads a lot of people to the Lord. But that does not excuse you from being a part of the work of the ministry. Because some people will lay the foundation, and other people will build upon the foundation. Uh, in the other illustration of farming, he says, Look, I planted, Apollos watered, 
But God gave the increase, right? Because ultimately, what is it? Well, it's the work of the Lord. That's what it is. I mean, that's important for us to understand. And that's the next thing. It's the work of the Lord. It's the work of the Lord. That's what it's also called. It's called the work of the ministry. It's called the work of evangelism. And it's called the work of the Lord. What exactly is the work of the Lord? Well, let's just break it down and make it very simple. The work of the Lord is the work that the Lord did when the Lord was here doing work. I mean, you can't pay for this kind of stuff. I mean, it's the work of the Lord. What was the work the Lord did? Well, let's look in John chapter 17. Jesus Christ, near the end of his physical life, the cross is near and approaching. He prays to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says in verse number 4, to the Father, I have glorified thee on the earth. Notice, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now, when Jesus prays this prayer to the Father, I have finished the work thou gavest me to do, he had not yet died on the cross. So he's not talking about the death and the crucifixion to pay for man's sins. Yes, for sure, he had that to do also. But the context of John chapter 17, and you take time at home and you read the entire chapter, and the subject of John chapter 17 throughout is the building up and the preparing of his disciples that will carry on his work after Jesus Christ is gone. That's the work that Jesus Christ was given to do. That's the work of the Lord, building up of other disciples to carry on the ministry. That's why we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 10, if you're saved by grace through faith, you are also called his workmanship. You are Christ's workmanship, right? So what do we call that? Well, we'll call that the work of discipleship. It's the work of discipleship. Somebody lays the foundation and another builds thereon. Do your part. Be a part of let's all work together. At the end of the day, we're not making disciples of ourselves. We're not doing anything for our own glory. God is the one who gives the increase. God is the one who's ultimately doing the work. If anything we do has any value, it's not because we're awesome evangelists. It's not because we're awesome disciple makers. It's not because we can memorize more scripture than anybody else. It's because the Lord gives grace. It's because our hearts are clean enough that he chooses to use us with all our flaws. And if he so chooses, and if you get to be used, man, just give all the praise and honor to him because he's the one who did it. You didn't do it. Your flesh couldn't possibly do it. This is the work. And Jesus did this. And so then he gave to his disciples to do this very work. That's why we have the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Literally means make disciples of all nations. You say, how do you know that? Well, because it's translated make disciples in other places. Sure, that's one reason. But because the word disciple literally means a learner. Go and teach all nations. Make them learners. Make them disciples. That's how it works. That's what he left for all of us as the church. So we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, one of my favorite all-time verses. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. Notice, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not just sometimes thinking about the work of the Lord. 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, sometimes it seems like it's in vain. Sometimes you invest. How many people have done that? You invest in somebody. Man, you witness and you share and you witness and you share, and they just, they just cast it in the dirt. They don't care. Or you invest in somebody in discipleship and you spend hours and weeks and months and maybe years of your life helping to build somebody. And they just, I mean, they just trash it all and walk away. And, and it, your tendency would be in the flesh to think, Ugh, I mean, why bother? I mean, I could have been, you know, out fishing. I mean, I could have been doing something else. I mean, why am I wasting my time? People don't even care. Well, not according to the scriptures. It says your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain because the word of God doesn't come back void. Your labor is not in vain because God will use it. Now, he may not have used it today in the way that you can see a visible result. But God's word is hidden in their heart. You invested in somebody, God's going to use it. You can know that. And only eternity is going to show how much he's used it. But not only that, but it's not in vain because ultimately he's going to reward you according to your faithful service. And we'll see that in just a minute as we go forward. Because we are laborers together with God. Somebody wins somebody to Christ. Man, rejoice in that. Somebody else builds upon the foundation. Man, let's rejoice in that. But verse number 10, notice verse number 10. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. Let every man take heed how he does this building work. So there's something really important about how we go about building. So much so that the Holy Spirit warns us and says, take heed, hey, pay attention. You don't want to blow this one. You don't want to do it wrong. You don't want to build a shaky building on a good foundation. You don't want to mess up the building of God's house. Now, that's kind of a heavy responsibility, but it's that important. Listen, get back to our theme, the power of community. God takes this thing of all of us being together in a community. By the way, tonight when we have communion. That's a very, very important aspect of our community. I hope that every single one of you will be back tonight. History says you won't. And God help you if you won't. But we need to value this thing. And tonight's a really good way for you to show that you do. We need to make this kind of thing a priority because God takes it seriously. Jesus died a brutal death and he did it to create a unified body of believers that would accurately represent him in the world today. While he's physically absent, we are his hands, we are his feet. Let me ask you something. Do you think doctrine matters? I mean, 2 Timothy 3.16, it is the first thing listed as the reason why we have the scriptures. <laughs> Some people would say, doctrine divides. Get rid of that evil doctrine and let's just love each other. Um, you better be careful how you build on that foundation. Let me ask you a question. Do you think holiness matters? Do you think it matters to the Lord what his body represents when privately members of his body are doing secretly shameful, sinful things when nobody's looking or maybe when other people are looking? Do you think that matters to him? 
You need to take heed how you build on this foundation. Do you think unity matters? Do you think it grieves the heart of God that he allowed his body to be broken so that our body could be unified and then our body becomes splintered and divided? It grieves his heart. Take heed how you build thereon. Do you think sacrificial giving and serving matters, really? I mean, this is a big church. There's a lot of people getting stuff done. If I don't show up, man, they're fine. Well, you better take heed because there is coming a day that we will see in just a minute in the last few verses of this passage where each and every one will give an account of what they did, oh, in the context of building the community. It's that important. It is that important. Do you really think that everybody out there who names the name of Jesus is building the house right? Come on. When Paul did it in verse 10, he says, as a wise master builder. A wise master builder. You know what that makes me think? That in the world of this building construction trade that the Lord is using this illustration, that some are just apprentice builders. Others might be journeyman builders, and some are master builders. You know how you become a master builder? Well, Paul says it's by the grace of God, first off. He says, nothing I can do. But you know how else? By taking that grace and exercising it step by step from faith to faith, you gain some experience in life. You know the guys who are really good at building things? They didn't just wake up one day good at it. They, they nailed a lot of stuff crooked. I mean, they, 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 they made the brick, bricks crooked. I mean, they did things badly until they started figuring out how to do it rightly. You know what I mean? I mean, it takes experience to do good at it, right? So as a wise master builder, man, we need some experience in building this house of God, don't we? We need to have proven effectiveness. Yeah, it's important. Uh, and God is paying attention. But he's not only paying attention. He's going to pay us back for what it is we've done. Uh, whether good or bad. And that's our second point and the second thing to keep us from being carnal. And that is, here's the word, you are requited. That's a word, kids, for work. You are requited, requite, not requited, we're not quitting. To requite means to repay. It means to reward or to return, okay? It's kind of like require. That's why I picked it. It kind of looks cool. Okay. Now, we're going to talk about this thing and get in the last few verses. What we love to talk about in the church these days, and as long as I've been saved, I've been saved quite a while, Christians love talking about the rapture, don't we? I mean, we think about what that's going to be like, and we'll be caught up in the air to be with them, and, you know, some people pass away from this physical life first, and they'll be raptured also, and, but some of us, somebody's going to be alive when he comes and never have to experience death and just poof out of here and, you know, I'm still holding out hope that it'll come before my physical life ends. I don't know. But we think about the rapture and the glorious appearing and getting together, man, and just hugging Jesus and being with all our loved ones that went before us and, man, all the wonderful, wonderful things that go with the rapture. And we get all excited about the rapture. 
and we should. But I just want to balance your perspective because before we can unite with all of our loved ones in heaven who right now are perfect and pure and eternal and sinless and spotless and glorified, we first have to make a quick pit stop at this thing called the judgment seat of Christ. We have to do it. And can I just tell you that in your practical Christian life today, there may be no greater doctrine for you to understand than that of the judgment seat of Christ. You have to have your mind wrapped around this thing. The judgment seat of Christ, for those of you that don't know, is the judgment of a Christian's works that he has done in the body of Christ after his salvation. Not to be confused with the judgment of your sins, which were placed on Jesus Christ on Calvary. Thank God. There's nothing we could have ever done about that. So the judgment of your sins is gone. It's over. Now you are a Christian. You are in his body. Before him, through the blood of Christ, you are perfect. But you have work to do, and he's going to call into account the work that you have done or not done. And that's what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, Now if any man build upon this foundation, the foundation is Jesus Christ. In order to build upon the foundation, it comes after salvation. So we're going to be judged for things that happen after salvation. Clear? In fact, this doctrine is so critical and so important that God repeats it in several places. So I want you to see some other places. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse number 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. And if you were paying attention in those few verses, you'll equate the judgment seat of Christ gives account to God. Therefore, Jesus Christ is God. There you go. And everybody's going to go through it. Everybody who's saved, it's written to the church in Rome. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Don't kid yourself into thinking you're getting out of this one. Uh, there's only one way out of this judgment, and that's if you're never saved, and the judgment for you is way worse. You don't want that. You don't want that. Uh, you want this one. This is way better. And every single one of us will face this. And let me just tell you, if that doesn't get on your radar... I don't want to get ahead of myself, but if that doesn't change the way you look at how you're going to live life this afternoon and tomorrow and the next day with an eye towards the fact that it is 100% guaranteed that one day you will face off, face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, well, I don't know what to say about you. I mean, I don't know if you're saved, but man, I, if that doesn't get on your radar, man, I just don't know. Because there are no exceptions. No Christian is accepted from that judgment because every Christian is expected 
to work. We are called to be laborers with him. And the judgment on you as an individual, again, is based on your work toward the body. So going back to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13, every man's work shall be made manifest. Just another way of saying the same thing we saw in Romans and in 2 Corinthians 5. Every man's work shall be made manifest, shall be declared. It says, for the day shall declare it. Now, a lot of you are good Bible students, and you know that when we come across that phrase, the day, that that's going to refer to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, wait a minute, this is the rapture, and that's the second coming, and the rapture is not the same as the second coming. Right, you're exactly right, but I want you to understand something. The Word of God is always very consistent. The first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ come in phases. When Jesus Christ came the first time, his first revelation was privately to his family only. Right? There they were, Mary, Joseph in the manger. Few people came to see. 30 years later, Jesus Christ is made manifest publicly as he got baptized and started his public ministry in the earth, and everybody then knew who Jesus Christ was. Well, the second coming is no different because it comes in phases. And the first phase of his second coming is the rapture of the church, where he reveals himself privately only to his family to be followed about seven years later publicly such that every eye shall see him when he comes to judge at Armageddon and set up a 1,000-year kingdom. The day shall declare it. So the rapture is going to happen any day now. Who knows? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about it. And we'll be caught up together in the clouds with him, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, right? But we're going to be caught up in the clouds. So Jesus Christ doesn't actually come all the way to the earth. He comes from the third heaven through the second heaven and down to our atmosphere. And we're caught up into the clouds. And we meet him there. And before we can go any higher, before we can continue on into heaven where all the people are already purged and sinless and clean and glorified, well, we need to have that face off with Jesus Christ. And each one of us is going to have it and how he plays it out and how long it takes, you know, who knows. All I care about is the time I got to do it. That's all I care about. I mean, good luck to all y'all. I'm worried about me. And I got to give an account of me and you got to give an account of you. But let's dig into a little bit about what this thing might look like. John chapter 10, Jesus said, verse number two, He that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, so there's some door opening. And the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. Well, we see that picture in Revelation chapter 4, in verse number 1, where John is the apostle who is a picture and a type of the entire church. Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, you see the church, the church, the church, the church, seven churches, Asia Minor. John chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, the Apostle John is raptured out. You never hear the church again in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, verse number 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. There it is. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must, must be hereafter. And immediately John is in the presence of the throne. That's what's going on. I expect 
One day there will be a day, and there will be a noise, and lost people around will hear the noise, and they'll say, boy, that sounded like a trumpet. But what I'm going to hear, according to John chapter 10, he's going to call me by name, and according to Revelation chapter 4, he's going to say, come up hither. One day that sound's going to come, and I'm not going to hear a trumpet. I'm going to hear his voice, and he's going to say, Jeff Bartell, come up hither, and you're going to hear your name, come up hither. And when that happens, boom, immediately you're in the Spirit and you're standing before Him. Now that sounds cool. We're not done. I mean, you really think you're just going to have, you know, just hug it out? You think that's how it's going down? I mean, what do we see in the Scriptures that people do when they meet Jesus Christ face to face? They just hug it out. What up, Big J? <laughs> People talk like that, man. <laughs> Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's not Sunday. That's the day of the Lord. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Connecting the dots. Verse number 12. I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And we'll see in a second the next verses, which are the description of Jesus. But go down to verse 17. Here's the reaction. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I fell at his feet as dead. Now you can think that you're going to go into a charismatic fit and dancing and shouting and laughing and rolling around and having a great old time. Let me just tell you what you're not going to do. You're not going to do that. When you first see him, it's like the life is sucked out of you. And you're on your face, prostrate before the Lord of glory, as you should be, as you should be. Uh, let's go back to his, oh, let me, let me just give you an idea of that. I, I actually just threw this little graphic up to give you an idea. So he's going to call us up, and that's the way you're going to be in front of him. I mean, he is the Lord of glory, and you've got nothing. I mean, really, everything that you thought you were hiding, <laughs> It's over. It's done. There's nothing left. And you're just down. Uh, let's talk about the description. Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. And his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were, notice, as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Did anybody else do the dumb thing I did when we had the eclipse last year, and it was like 90%, and you looked at the sun anyway, and they told you not to? Don't raise your hand. That would be foolish. I did it. My eyes burned like somebody rubbed sand in them for like a week because I, I blinked quickly open at 10% of the sun. That was dumb, kids. <laughs> Don't do that. His countenance was as the sun shines in its strength. You just going to hug it out? Is that what you're going to do? That moment... That's the moment you're called upon to give your account to him. 
Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. So those eyes of fire, they look deep into your soul, and whatever your life consists of will be tested by the fire. That's your work. And it will be made manifest, it says, of what sort it is. He's looking for the quality of your life, not the quantity. And it's either going to be manifested because it survived the flames, or it's going to be made manifest because it didn't survive the flames. So it says in verse 14, If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he'll receive a reward. Amen. So let's talk more about that. Letter A, rewards for doing the work of the Lord. There are rewards for doing the work of the Lord, right? These are crowns that are given, and these things are represented by gold, silver, and precious stones. These are elements that are not consumed when put to the fire. They, in fact, are purified. So Proverbs 17.3 says, The fining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. So gold, what does that represent? What, how do you earn gold for eternity? Well, that represents the deity of Jesus Christ. That represents his deity. Gold is the most valuable thing here on earth. It's not the most valuable thing in heaven. It's heaven's asphalt. But it represents the things that we value the most. Right? That's his deity. All the furniture in the holy place, in the temple, are overlaid with gold. Right? So very quickly, let me just give you what these are all about. And, and really the gold, you know, what that, you know how you lay up gold for yourself? Well, do sacrificial service for God alone. What are the things that you do in your life you just do for the glory of God? There's things that you do. Uh, there's some people who will serve in church, but they have an ulterior motive. There are some single adults that come to church and participate just so that they can meet a nice moral girl. Okay, that's not evil it's just not for the lord alone you're not getting gold for that uh, you might get a wife <laughs> but but you're not getting gold and you're better off looking here than some of the other places anyway but i'm just saying some things you don't do really for the lord some things you do some guys come to church just so they can pass out business cards uh, some people come to church for any number of reasons they just want to look important i don't know i don't know god knows he's going to test what sort your work is and what about silver? Well, silver throughout the Bible is the price of redemption. It's the price of redemption. So in the Old Testament, there were shekels of, sil shekels of silver that were paid to redeem the souls of men that were in battle. Uh, Judas betrays Jesus Christ with 30 pieces of silver. So the idea of being connected to redemption means that uh, laying up silver is the work of the gospel. Uh, anytime you take the time to tell people how they can be saved, you're laying up silver for yourself in eternity. Precious stones, precious stones are always likened unto people. So every person you win to Jesus Christ, every person that you invest in, every person that, that you help grow in their discipleship and their walk with the Lord, every one of the people that you invest in, that is a precious stone. 
In Proverbs chapter 31, it says, Who can find a virtuous woman? Her price is far above rubies. Christians are called, Paul calls the Christians in Thessalonica, he says, My joy and my crown, the, the stones, the rubies that are in the crown. That's the work of discipleship. It's the work of investing in the lives of other people. So Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 20, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Live your life not laying up as much as you possibly can for you right here and right now. Send as much of it. Listen, you can't take it with you when you die, but you can send it on ahead. Do the work and send it on ahead. Gold, silver, and precious stones. Those are the things that are going to last forever. And if you do that, you'll receive a reward. And so we have another little visual to give you an idea. We talk about the judgment seat of Christ, and we want to emphasize, man, that's going to be awful. Well, not if you've done well. I mean, if you've done well, here's the judgment seat of Christ. Praise God. I mean, it's something to look towards. But we're not done, because 1 Corinthians 3 has verse 15. If any man's work shall be burned... He shall suffer loss. So letter B, let's talk a little bit about the regrets for doing the work of the flesh. Now we're going to take the time to look. We probably have a slide. Galatians chapter 5, 19 to 21. It tells you what the works of the flesh are. You can look at that and kind of compare it. But regrets come from living a life that was selfish. Your life had no investment or very little investment in eternity. Nothing of real value was laid up in store, Matthew 6, right, unto the day. And the day, the millennial day, will declare it. The day will declare it because here you are now, you made it into the kingdom and you either have a lot of rewards or you don't. The day will declare it, right? So it could be wood. Wood, well, that's dead trees. Psalm chapter 1 verse 3 says men are like trees. Hay is dead grass, right? 1 Peter chapter 1, all flesh is as grass. Stubble, that's dead wheat. Uh, Jesus said a corn of wheat has to fall into the ground and die if new life is going to grow out of it. You know what else is dead then, Christian? It's your flesh. It's your old man. It's your body. Didn't Paul say in Galatians 2, I am crucified with Christ? Oh, nevertheless I live. Oh, wait a minute. Yet not I. It's Christ that lives in me. See? I'm crucified. My flesh. My old man. So everything that you have done for yourself, pleasure, work, wealth, relationships, it's going to burn up. All you have done in the power of your flesh will burn up because he's going to test what sort it is. All your money, all your savings, all your toys, all your hobbies, all your activities is just working for a dead man. Working for a dead man. So in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 15, talking about Jesus Christ, says that he died for all, that they which live, the Christians, should not henceforth, anymore now after their salvation, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You are expected to work. Back to chapter 3, verse 15, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, this is kind of a good news, bad news deal, okay? We'll start with the good news. The good news is, he himself shall be saved. The guy who has all the stuff burned off, 
still he's saved, yet so as by fire. This is the eternal security of the believer. And the damnable heresy that keeps people, Christians in bondage into thinking that if something, if somehow you don't live good enough after your salvation, you're going to lose your salvation, keeps people in bondage. Keeps them in bondage. Here, maybe more than anywhere, it makes it very clear you truly are born again, and yet you live a very selfish life. Yet he himself shall be saved. Yet so as by fire. Okay, it might not have been a pleasant experience, that judgment seat, but you're not excluded from heaven. Man, God is good. What he did, he did forever. And there is nothing, I mean, listen to me, nothing that you could possibly do to lose your salvation. Not if you're truly saved, your sins are already paid for, past, present, and future, by Jesus Christ on the cross. Your works might burn up, but you're in, baby. I mean, you're good. So praise the Lord for that. That's the good news. The bad news is the yet-so-as-by-fire thing. As a born-again believer, this might be your state in the millennium. He himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now that's kind of gross. You probably don't want me to leave that up there very long. We're going to lunch in a minute. But you know what? He's warning us. He's warning us. He's saying, listen, everything's burned up. Nothing's left. You get in because it wasn't your life anyway. You got Christ's life. But your existence for a thousand years could be a whole lot better. Nobody wants that. But you know what? That's why he says, let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. Man, take heed now while you have a chance. It says such a Christian will suffer loss. Loss? Loss means that, well, you thought you had something and you don't anymore right? So some guys do the work of the ministry and the power of the flesh, and they're going to lose it all. They might build giant churches. They might start TV networks. They might write many books. They have their own airplanes. They control thousands of people. They raise millions of dollars, but they do it all in the power of the flesh. Some of them. Others, most of us, aren't so famous, right? So other people maybe just refuse to sacrifice anything for the Lord. They're not going to give their time. They're not going to give their money. They're not going to use their skills. They show up in church and complain if other people don't serve them the way they think they should be served. They get mad if people don't give to them the things that they think that they should be given to just because they walked inside the magic doors. Take heed. 2 John, one little chapter, verse number 8. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. You see, there's a possibility that you maybe even have already earned some rewards. But if you don't finish well, you might lose them. Not your salvation, your rewards. Which should give you, letter C, and we're almost done, the motivation for ministry. The motivation, this has to be your motivation. That day is coming. It's our day of reckoning. 
and every single one of us is going to face it. It's real. So ask yourself, does that motivate how you behave? Does that motivate how you do what you do? Because it should. We read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10 that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The very next verse, verse 11, says this, in the context of the judgment seat of Christ, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. That day is, I wish it wasn't, called the terror of the Lord. You want to know what a healthy fear of God is for a Christian? That's it right there. You say, I'm not afraid of my daddy. He's my daddy. I love him. I could sit up on his lap and chat with him all day. Okay. But he's also not just winking at your sin and your carnality. It's the terror of the Lord. And it is a healthy, holy fear that will keep you between the white lines. And give your rewards for eternity. And do something that matters with your life. So in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, this could be good news, this could be bad news. It depends on you. But it says, be not deceived. Some people are deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And verse 9, and let us not be weary in well-doing, y'all. I know it gets weary. I know it gets tiring. Why? Because it's work. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith, because we is greater than me. See? So listen, I didn't do this today to do anything other than accurately portray what the Scriptures say. Don't let the judgment seat of Christ scare you unless you're carnal. Then let it scare you. But if you're faithful and you're serving, it's going to be a time of rejoicing. It really is. So very quickly, the twofold cure for carnality. Number one, ministry. Get busy, man. Get busy in the work of the Lord. And find that you run out of time to do all the things that you have been doing for yourself. You'll just run out of time. That's a good thing. Get busy in the ministry. And so ministry is the first cure for carnality. The other one is accountability. It's always accountability. God's watching. And that ought to motivate you. You get that down in your soul. And you'll see a new man operating in your life. You discount this warning. Roll the dice, man. Good luck. It's going to be tough. But you have been warned. And you know what? God is so good. He warns us while there is yet time. So if you're here today and you haven't known the Lord as your Savior, man, we can do that right now. If you're here today and you have found that your life has been all about you, well, you can do that. You take care of that right now. Ask God to forgive your carnality. And commit that today is the day, man, I am getting this thing back on track. And let's prepare ourselves for that day that's coming with as much joy as possibly can be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.